Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 19, 47 and 48, and Luke 20, verses 1 through 8. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, Also, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Kay. Well, good morning and welcome to the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. Uh, my name's Taylor and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're about to get into a time of teaching where we unpack the, the text that Kay just read for us, uh, along with this morning, a lot more verses on the end of that. Uh, so before we do that, would you join me in praying for this time? Father God, we come before you this morning and, and our prayer this morning, at least my prayer for us, is that we would see your son in a way that has always been true of him, that's always been reality, but that maybe is revealed to us in a way that is fresh, that is timely, that is needed in our lives today. God, would we see an image and a vision of your son that just fills out the wonder and the grandeur of his glory? pray that we would see that this morning, and that you would enlighten our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, and in your Son's name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning I want to open our time together by doing a little bit uh, of an exercise in our imagination. So what I want you to do is just grab uh, a pen if it's near you and, and the seat backs in front of you or maybe you brought one with you uh, and a piece of paper. You can use a prayer card or again a piece of paper you got with you. Uh, you can also just whip out your phone uh, and go to the notes app and uh, we'll just trust that you're on your notes app because that's how we roll here at church. Uh, but just pull something out to, to write down some things on and have that handy. And before we get to actually writing, uh, I just want you, if you're comfortable, to just close your eyes for a minute. Just close your eyes. And what I want you to do is take a minute and call to mind a picture of Jesus. Just sit for a moment and let your imagination settle in about Jesus. What does he look like? What is he doing how would you describe him in the way that you are imagining him? Just give you a moment to let that imagination settle in. The picture of Jesus. You can keep your eyes closed if you want, or you can go ahead and open your eyes. 
But with that image of Jesus in mind, what I want you to do with your pen or paper or notes app on your phone is write down any adjectives that come to mind to describe this Jesus. So as you imagine him, as you picture him, what are some adjectives, some, some descriptive words of how you would describe Jesus? In other words, when you think of Jesus, what's he like? And just write down any of those words or descriptions that come to mind. I've done an imaginative exercise like this a few times before, and it can be helpful in a lot of ways. But as I was preparing for the sermon, I realized that every time I have sought to imagine Jesus, and actually every time I just think of him in the course of my daily life, there's a very important aspect of his character that's often missing for me. Because usually when, these kind, when we think of Jesus, these kind of things come to mind. And maybe they're some of the things that you wrote down and are continuing to write down. I encourage you to just keep doing that as you go throughout the service. But maybe you thought of some things like this. He's loving. He's compassionate. He's good. He's moral. Maybe he's an inspiring social critic or, or someone who's provocative. Maybe you think of him as, as courageous Maybe you have a view of Jesus where he's more stern or severe in judgment. Maybe there are other things that that you wrote down. And all those things, to at least some degree, are absolutely true. But how many of us, when we were thinking about Jesus, used words like this? Smart, intelligent, well-informed. So what we often forget, what at least I often forget when I talk or think about Jesus, is that the way that he is portrayed by the authors of Scripture is that he is absolutely brilliant. Like he is wicked smart. And, but many people today, Christian or not, have a hard time putting Jesus in the category of intelligence. Right? Like maybe he's nice, maybe he's good, maybe he teaches good things. He might even have some wise things to say. Maybe he's even God, but brilliant? Smart? And yet if you read the gospel stories carefully, this is exactly how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John view Jesus. Jesus' brilliance is woven into the stories that we have of his life. I mean, this is true even from a, a young age, right? In Luke chapter 2, Luke brings it to light. Uh, this moment, this amazing moment where Mary and Joseph lose Jesus is like an all-time parenting moment. They don't know where Jesus is. And where is he? He's in the temple with the religious leaders and thought leaders in Jerusalem, reasoning with them, asking them questions. And, and Luke tells us the people were amazed at his insight and understanding. And he's like 12 years old. His parents just lost him and he ended up amazing everyone with how smart he was. Like parents, have you ever had that moment where you're helping your kid with your homework and it just hits you? Like, it's happened. My kid's smarter than I am now. Tried to stop it as long as possible, but I just couldn't hold it off much longer. I think that's kind of what happens to Mary and Joseph in this moment. I can picture Joseph kind of nudging Mary and whispering, dang it, Jesus is smarter than we are. In fact, what our text today challenges us to do is kind of adopt the same framework that started to come through when he was young that Mary and Joseph realized. If we read Luke chapter 20 carefully, we can't help but notice that Jesus is smarter than we are. That Jesus is smarter than we are. And in our text today, Jesus is actually back at that very same temple where he astounded people with his brilliance at age 12. 
And here, Luke tells us the people are amazed at him for exactly the same reason. His brilliance is just on full display. But instead of being a kid who just got lost by his parents for a few minutes, the scenario is just a little bit different. Luke sets the scene for us in chapter 19, verse 47, and I invite you to join me in reading this, either in your Bible or it'll appear on the screen as well. Here's what Luke says. He says, and he was teaching, that's Jesus, daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they could not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember that uh, Pastor Bill walked us through the, the moment when Jesus has just entered Jerusalem on a donkey, which was kind of the most bold uh, statement that he's made so far, that he is the, the promised king of Israel. So he's entering in this moment as king, and as the king entering the city, the first thing he does is he goes straight to the temple, and Pastor Bill walked us through this last week where he challenged the religious authorities in the temple for how they were conducting themselves how they were treating the temple. Now, it's important to understand that the temple was the center of Jewish life, not just religious Jewish life, but all Jewish life, social, political, all of it. It was the center of their life, and it was the primary place where the religious leaders and other leaders in Jerusalem got their authority. So, in fact, each group of people listed here in verse, 30, verse 47, the chief priests, the scribes, the principal or noble men, all of them drew some sort of significance from their association with the temple. The temple secured their status and their reputation in the Jewish community. But now, this itinerant preacher, who they'd already butted heads with a few times before, had burst in, flipped some tables, and questioned that credibility by condemning the way they were using this sacred space. He just waltzed in and condemned the very temple that gave them significance and authority and credibility. And not only that, but what we see here in, in Luke is that he, he had kind of set up shop there. He, he began teaching the people daily, it says. He was teaching daily in the temple. So Jesus purges the temple, then just hangs out and starts teaching, and is teaching every day. And from all we can tell, this was the very last, most threatening, final straw for the Jewish leaders. Because immediately we are told that they were what? They were seeking to destroy him. They were seeking to destroy him. They wanted to bring him down, to get him out of the picture. Because he threatened the loss of their reputation and influence in Jerusalem. As long as Jesus is around, their reputation, their influence, their authority was at stake. It was threatened. So they just wanted to get rid of him and bring him down. But there was something in the way from them just being able to do this. Did you notice what it was? There's something in their way. It was the people. See, the people, Jesus' teaching was so captivating, it was so insightful, it was so compelling that Luke tells us that they were what? They were hanging on his every word. They were hanging on to his words. His brilliance had such an effect on the crowd that the leaders knew they had to tread lightly. Right? They couldn't just like walk up and grab him when he had this kind of a following. It would backfire and do them in. The people would revolt. So what do they do? They set out to trap him. They set out to trap him, Luke says. And the idea goes like this. This is true in all of our lives. When, when you want somebody to stop following the ideas of a certain person, one of the first things you do is poke holes in the credibility of the person they're following, right? As long as we can make them seem like they're not a really reliable source, then they'll stop following that person. 
When we do this all the time, we're always asking the question, who says? Right? We hear a piece of information where we ask, who says? Why should I listen to them? Is, are they even credible? Do they carry authority in that field? Who says? That's why we're often more likely to trust scientific research and peer-reviewed studies than Wikipedia or our uncle on Facebook, right? Because you wouldn't trust someone in an area where they have no credibility or authority to be speaking in that area. So that's what the religious leaders want to do. They want to poke holes in Jesus' credibility. They want to discredit him. They want to outsmart him. Catch him in his words. And they start by actually directly questioning his authority. Here's what they say in verse 2. Read with me. They say, tell us by what authority you do these things, i.e. waltzing into Jerusalem on a donkey, clearing out the temple, teaching people in the temple. What authority are you doing these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, it's important to remember, they're not asking a genuine question, right? Like, they're not just, like, super curious. Hey, Jesus, we've just been wondering, where'd you get your authority from? No, their intention is to out him publicly. They want to embarrass him. They want to catch him in his words so that he says something they can capture on their phone and make go viral so that he gets canceled. That's their goal. And they kind of like their chances. I don't think this random guy from awful little Nazareth can hang with them, the intellectual elite leaders. But Jesus, in responding to this question, does what all brilliant people do most of the time, and he answers their question with another question, right? He's like, you gave this question, I'm going to answer it with another question. What about John the Baptist? Where did his authority come from? You tell me. Now, John, he was another super popular guy among the Jewish people. People loved him uh, much like they loved Jesus. They thought he was a true prophet who was sent from God. But the religious leaders, they didn't like him so much. In fact, they were outwardly opposed to John. So they're torn on how to answer this question. I just love what happens next. It's so good. Like, they bring everyone together, and they have this little powwow. And they're like, all right, we got to figure out how we're going to answer this. He asked a really good question. we got to figure out how we're going to do it. Well, we can't say that, his, that John's authority didn't come from God because then we're dead. Like, the people will stone us. They'll kill us. Uh, John's too popular to do that. But if we say from God, or if we say he's, he's from God, and, and they, Jesus says, well, then if he's from God, I'm from God, he can shame us for not believing in John in the first place. So we're stuck. So they come back, they have this little powwow, they circle up, and they come back, and the only thing they can think to say is, we don't know. Kind of makes me think of that scene in, in Monty Python where they're at the, the bridge of death, and they're answering the questions three, and, and the very last question, King Arthur responds with another question, he's like, African or European swallow, and the guy's like, I don't know, and then he gets thrown into the lake of death, right? It's like, they're like, I don't know. Jesus stumped him with the question. And he says, if you can't tell me, then I won't tell you. Now, not only do we see just the brilliance of Jesus on display in how he debates the people, we also see a hint at what it is that makes him so much smarter than us, and it's this, that Jesus is smarter because his authority is higher. Jesus is smarter because his authority is higher. See, the leaders, they, want to, they come to him, they want to see his resume, like his education, his experience. What is it that gives you this authority? But Jesus turns that question on its head and basically says, my authority, it doesn't even work like yours does. It comes from a completely different place. See, yours comes from human systems, from this, this temple and, and the human leadership system, but mine comes from above. Mine's from God. It's a totally different kind of authority. 
He actually emphasizes this later at the very end of Luke 20 when he quotes Psalm 110, which was a famous psalm about the coming Messiah and the coming king. And, and David has the psalm, and, and essentially his summary is David said that the Messiah was going to come from a higher place than even he was, and he's the highest king in Israel, so I have to have some sort of divine authority. His point is my authority comes from God. Now the thing is, people had always noticed this about Jesus' teaching. In fact, it's actually why people hung on his every word. In a different account of the life of Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew, we have this, chapters 5, 6, and 7 are what we often call the Sermon on the Mount, which is just this extended teaching that Jesus gave on life in the kingdom of God. And at the very end of this, in in chapter 7, Matthew says that, that the people hung on his every word. He uses similar things. They were amazed at his teaching. But they weren't amazed at it just because of what he said, but because of the authority with which he said it. Because they had heard people say smart, good things. They had teachers. But this guy, he was different. He taught with authority. They're like, he says things that, like, he really knows what's going on and can do something about them. And Jesus says, that's because my authority is different from these people's authority. In fact, that's one of the reasons for Jesus' miracles is to showcase his authority over every area of life, his authority over disease, over death, over even nature when he calms the storm. All of these are just a symbol and a signifying moment of of his authority. Which means that his vision for life, his words, the things that he is teaching, they are worth being heard because they come from God. His authority is higher. So now at this point, the temple leaders are fuming. He has just moved on to tell a parable that let's just say wasn't too nice about the the temple leaders. And so they're just fuming. They're ready to kill this guy right now. But Luke tells us they're still afraid of upsetting the people. So they send in another group of people. They're like, all right, well, you guys didn't do the trick. Let's send another group of people to try to outsmart Jesus and get the people to, to turn against him. And this time they have the perfect topic to do it with, politics. Have you ever tried to leave a conversation about politics without upsetting at least one person? It's impossible. Trust me, I've tried. You can't do it. So they're like, we're easily going to get him trapped. And the crowd listening, they have a lot of people from a lot of different political camps. There are some people who absolutely hate the thought of Rome, who in that moment are plotting a revolt against Rome. And then there are some people who are like quick to hear any word against Rome and run and report it to the Roman officials. So people all over the map, Jesus has to upset someone. Not to mention that the question's about taxes, which everyone had an opinion on, unlike today. It's a joke. This is a lose-lose situation for Jesus. But here's how he responds, verse 23. Here's what Luke tells us. He says, he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, a coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. And he said to them, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And we could take a whole sermon just to unpack the implications of that statement and that brilliant response, but for now, I just want to zero in on one thing that Luke says. Luke says at the very beginning of verse 23, he perceived their craftiness. He perceived their craftiness, and that perception informed how he answered them. And friends, this is his brilliance. See, Jesus doesn't just have an IQ that's off the charts. He's an EQ, an emotional intelligence that is supernatural. Friends, Jesus doesn't just understand questions and their answers better than we do. He understands our hearts 
And the reasons we ask those questions, when we raise the questions, Jesus sees our intentions. He knows and understands our hearts. And from that starting point, he then offers a really insightful answer. He says the things that have the image of Caesar that don't conflict with allegiance to God, just give them to Caesar. And those things that bear God image, the things that he deserves, like loyalty in our very lives, those should be given to God. So again, they can't catch him. And here's what we see from this. That Jesus is smarter than we are, not only because his authority is higher, but also because his understanding is deeper. His understanding is deeper. Jesus understands both the human heart and the affairs of our world in a deeper and better way than we ever can or will. And this becomes even more clear in the final group that dares to outsmart him. They send in this last group because those second people didn't work. And this group's called the Sadducees. And their big sticking point was that they only believed and trusted the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. For them, that was the only scripture that held any weight of authority, the only thing that was inspired by God. That's all they cared about. And because of that, they searched and scanned the first five books of the Bible. And they were like, well, we don't see anything about the resurrection of the dead or eternal life. So they just didn't believe in eternal life. They're like, once you're dead, you're dead, and that's it. Probably a lot of fun at parties. Those were the Sadducees. So they ask him a question about the resurrection that they had used to stump a bunch of people already. They're like, well, let's try it out on Jesus. And basically the question goes like this. So in the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, there was a provision for widows to be taken care of by the brother of the husband who died. So if the husband dies, the brother marries the widow and takes care of her. And this was actually a really amazing law to make sure that single women were cared for among God's people and not discarded. But based on this law, the Sadducees say, well, what if, what if a man's brother dies, leaves, him no, leaves the woman no kids, and then the other brother marries her, but then he dies, and that keeps going until all seven brothers died? What then? Now, first of all, that would raise a lot of questions for me if I were the eighth brother. I'd probably be like, let's stay away from that situation. Don't know what's going on there. But they ask, who then will she be married to in heaven? Which husband? Basically, what they're suggesting is, hey, if the resurrection were real, it would lead to all kinds of absurd situations, like seven husbands for one woman, who is she going to be married to? Therefore, there can't be a resurrection. Gotcha, Jesus. But yet again, they underestimate the brilliance of a Jesus who has a deeper understanding than them about all things. Here's how he answers in verse 34. It says, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of resurrection." But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now again, we could spend a whole sermon just unpacking that and all the questions that that raises. But the first thing Jesus said is, he says two things. First thing, he's like, look, Moses already told you about the resurrection. That Torah, those first five books that you love, it's actually right there if you just read it right. The resurrection's there. And then he says, even so, why would you assume that the resurrection has, marrows, mar or has marriage and widows and poisoned, I mean, dead husbands? Like, why would you imagine that that's even there? In other words, if you think that what God is doing is basically copying everything you think you know about this current age into the next one, then you just don't have a good understanding of what God's doing. 
is not just copy-paste. You don't understand what he's doing both then and now. And this is kind of what happens all throughout Luke 20, right? The leaders, all these different kinds of leaders approach him from the posture of their set understanding about how they think things are regarding politics, money, religion, authority, eternal life, marriage, God's kingdom. They approach him with their understanding of things. And he bests them because his understanding of all these things is deeper than theirs. As someone through whom the world was created, he knows how it is supposed to function. As someone who is fully God, he has a deep understanding of the human heart. As someone who is fully human, he has a deep understanding of life on this earth. And as someone who reigns over the kingdom of God, he has a deeper understanding of the past, present, and future and what they're going to look like when God has his way. He has a deeper understanding. In his book, Divine Conspiracy, which is one of my favorite books of all time, Dallas Willard remarks that this is the only view of Jesus that actually makes sense. Here's what he wonders. He says, can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if he were not smart? If he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop to think about it, how could he be what we take him to be in all other respects, all the things we listed at the beginning of this time, and not be the best informed, most intelligent person of all, the smartest person who ever lived? How can he not be that if he's all of these other things? So how then do we begin in our daily practical lives to experience Jesus as this brilliant king in our lives? How do we begin to experience him? I want to offer two suggestions as we close. Two suggestions. Here's the first. Let him question you. Let him question you. Friends, we can be a lot like these religious leaders. We can come to brilliant Jesus and, and question his authority, challenge his teaching, come to him with our preconceived ideas and answers to things. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. We should be able to come to him and ask him questions, even challenge things we don't agree with. But the problem comes that we can so easily slip into always coming to him with questions and challenges and never letting him challenge us or question us. We might even come to Jesus and look for advice or for input or for his insight, but not his authority, right? Authority's kind of sketchy to us. We're willing to look to him for guidance, but we shy away from giving him ultimate jurisdiction over every nook and cranny of our lives. Because if his authority really is from heaven, if it's really from God, then he could challenge me on anything and everything, right? And that's scary. So let's keep him at a distance. But I hope I'm not the first person to break the news to you that we all live life with some sort of authority in it. There's, for all of us, there's someone or something or some worldview or way of living that has the final say in our lives that we trust. And in our society today, sociologists have, have remarked and, and observed that the most respected base of authority has shifted more and more and more and more and more to the self. We are our own ultimate authority. There's no ultimate authoritative truth or reality. It's just up to us. Now here's the thing. When this is the case, we can find ourselves wanting all the things Jesus offers his kingdom without wanting the king himself. We want his stuff, but we want to stay the king. We want to maintain authority over our lives and just let him influence the, the process here and there. Like we literally have people in our society called Instagram influencers, and that's their job, and they just influence things. It's like, let's, let's just make Jesus one of those. He can say some things into my life, and that's it. We've all asked questions of Jesus, but when is the last time you let Jesus question you? 
This is an even more indicting question that uh, hit me hard when uh, I was working on this this week. When is the last time you were open to an idea from Jesus that made you uncomfortable or had unsettling consequences? Maybe it's about a lifestyle choice you know that he wouldn't approve of, or about forgiveness of someone who, who really hurt you. Maybe it's an obedience issue that you're, you keep ignoring and kind of putting off. Maybe it's a social issue where the Bible and our culture strongly disagree. When was the last time you disagreed with Jesus and submitted to his authority anyway? When's the last time you did that? Because listen, our world is full of people who have good things to say. But the question we have to wrestle with with as Christians is this. Is Jesus just another person with good things to say or is he the final say? Is he just another person with good things to say or is he the final say in my life? Do we come to him with it for his influence and not his authority? To be our friend and our counselor, but not our king? Do you live like Jesus' authority is really, truly higher than yours? If so, you have to make sure that you let him question you. Here's the second suggestion. Let him question you and then let him teach you. Let him teach you. What's most remarkable to me about this entire scene in the temple is that the leaders admit, like Luke records them verbally admitting, that Jesus bested them. He even says they marvel at his answers. These leaders, his opponents, are marveling at him. They admit that he outsmarted them, and yet they all go away and don't change their stance. They're so caught up in their own selfish interests and motivations that they're unwilling to be taught by Jesus. Don't miss this. If Jesus is as brilliant as the gospel writers portray him to be, if he has authority that is from God, if he understands our hearts and our world and our destiny better than anyone, then we have to assume a humble posture that allows him to teach us. Where we can come to him honest about our own intentions and agendas and and learn from him in all things. Now, in order to do this, we have to actually trust that his brilliance is, is competent in every area of our lives, right? We can't expect to grow as Christians if we still have trouble imagining Jesus this way, as smart or brilliant or well-informed. Here's Dallas Willard again emphasizing this very point. This is so good. He says, Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before saying Jesus is smart. He is not just nice, he is brilliant. Our commitment to Jesus can stand on no other foundation than a recognition that he is the one who knows the truth about our lives and our universe. It is not possible to trust Jesus or anyone else in matters where we do not believe him to be competent. Are there areas in your life where you see Jesus as more or less competent? Do you let him teach you in every area of life? At Christ Community, there's a reason that we talk so much about apprenticing with Jesus, about training with him, about learning from him in all of life like a a Jedi and an apprentice, right? That's part of why we created the Formed.life, which you can still sign up for right now. The Formed.life is just daily practices that are meant to bring us into the presence of Jesus so that he can question us, so that we can be seen and known by him at a deepest level of our hearts, and so we can learn about him and from him in all things. Let me just say, if this message touched you, touched on something for you, there's never been a better time to jump in. Because right now, the topic, the theme that we're talking about in the Form.life is, is submission, what it looks like to submit to the authority and teaching of our brilliant king. So I invite you to join that. Uh, it's nothing that you can get behind on or just do it at your own pace. 
Because Jesus is smarter than we are. His authority is higher. His understanding is deeper. But the question for us is, what is your posture? Are you letting brilliant Jesus question you? Are you letting him teach you in all of life? And if you're someone who's sitting here this morning naming that you've struggled to release the throne of your life to him, hear anew this invitation of his that remains the same. He says to us, come to me, rest in me, learn from me, and I will show you things that you never thought possible. Let's pray. Father God, this is a hard, difficult, challenging word that you have for us. It challenges me internally, and I think many of us probably feel the weight as well. And so God, I just pray that you would give us the courage, the liberty, the conviction to release and relinquish the things that are on the throne in our lives, including ourselves. God, help us to take a posture of full surrender to you, submitting to your authority, not in a way that never questions, but in a way that's willing to be questioned and to learn. God, we know that we cannot really develop this posture without the power of your spirit, so would, would you come, fill us, strengthen us to surrender. Pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of his spirit. Amen.